0: Before we begin this episode of the Ethics Podcast recorded in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com, let us ponder several verses in Psalms. The verse tells us, La Hashem Ha'aretz loa." This is Psalms 24. To Hashem belongs the land and all that fills it. The verse also tells us in Psalms, this is in Psalm one. 15, the heavens, they are for God, but the land he gave to us. And the Talmud asks a question, wait a minute. One verse tells us, God owns the land and all that fills it. The second verse tells us that no, God is in the heavens. The heavens are for God, but the land he gives to us, which is it? Who owns the land? Is it ours or is it God's? The land and all that fills it belong to God. And the Talmud gives us a wonderful answer. The verse that tells us that God owns the land, that is true before we make a blessing. Before we make a blessing to enjoy the fruits of this world that the Almighty created for us, The world and its pleasures, the land and all that fills it, belong to God. And we are stealing from God. We're robbing God if we partake without a blessing. However, the second verse in Psalms 115 that says, HaShemayim Shemayim LaShem, God, the heavens are for God. But the land he gave to us, that is post the blessing. Once a person makes a blessing, they, so to speak, acquire the rights to enjoy that. Pleasure from this world. And I hope you enjoy this ethics podcast. My email just says rabbiwolpe at gmail.com. We are still in chapter six, Mishnah number six of Pirkei Avos. This is the final chapter of Pirkei Avos. And we're in perhaps the most famous of the Mishnahs, of the Mishnayos in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of the Fathers, And that is the 48 ways to acquire wisdom, to acquire Torah. And we're up to way number 18, B'miut Ta'anug, with limiting of pleasure. So we talked about this already, that there's a whole list of things that are a little bit, you have to limit, you have to limit commerce, limit Derach Eretz, what does that mean? It means you have to have it in small doses, but not too much. Similarly, with way number 18, There's this idea of limiting pleasure or limited pleasure. Pleasure in small doses. Now, it's important to note that the the term that we use, pleasure, can mean different types of pleasure. This is referring specifically to physical and material pleasures. And what this is telling us is that a little bit of physical pleasure is beneficial to achieve wisdom. Provided it's done moderately, it doesn't overtake your life. Now, my grandfather, a blessed memory, used to always stress that we don't actually argue on the most fundamental of points. The most fundamental of points as to what we're here to do, why was humanity created, or why do we exist, In that question, there is no fundamental disagreement. We all agree that we're here. We are created. We exist to pursue and to achieve and to unlock pleasure and to avoid pain. Everyone agrees on that basic foundational principle. The only disagreement is in which arenas, in which areas, in which domains is said pleasure and said pain featured. We are told that the reason why we're here, the reason why we were created, the reason why we exist, the purpose of our life is to achieve pleasure. If you open up Mesila Sisharim, of course, that is oh, maybe you know one of the canonical books to talk about what we're supposed to do in life. Paragraph 1 of chapter 1, man was created with the sole purpose of receiving pleasure. That's why God created us. Derech Hashem, the way of God, also written by Ramchal, he has the same principle, starts off with the same principle, that we are created to receive divine goodness. God is good. God wanted to bestow goodness. And God created us as a receptacle for his goodness. Rambam, when he talks about the mitzvah of loving God, of course, our religious, spiritual life can be broken down into two components, love of God and fear of God. Every mitzvah between us and God fits into one of those two categories. So love of God is not just a mitzvah, it's one of the central mitzvahs of our life. In fact, there is a list of six mitzvot that apply at all times, the six constant mitzvos, and one of them is loving God. Well, what does it mean to love God? So the Rambam defines it for us. It means to experience the pleasure of God, which is the greatest and highest and most delightful of pleasures that can possibly exist. He also describes how to to do that. There's, There's a means to actually do that because we have a hard time interfacing with God. You cannot see God and live, Scripture tells us. So how do you have a point of contact, so to speak, to be able to appreciate, to understand God in order to have the pleasure of God? And of course, the answer to that is we have his Torah, and that's the proxy through which we can connect to him. And through the Torah, we can experience God and thereby have this very elevated level of pleasure. And he quotes the Midrash to this effect. The Almighty tells us that he wants us to love him. And how do you do that? Via the Torah. So we have, again, a very basic idea of our religious life, to love God. And what does that mean? It means to experience pleasure. And what does that mean? It means to experience pleasure the pleasure of God, which is a very lofty and ethereal pleasure. And it's much greater than any other pleasure that we can concoct with our physical senses. But to do it, of course, it requires a lot of hard work. We are familiar with the Talmud. And the Talmud tells us that in Olam Abba, In the world to come, the experience for the righteous is that they're going to be sitting with their crowns on their head, in their head, and they're going to be basking in the pleasure of God. So the ultimate reward in the world to come, well, what's that? That is the experience of this incredible pleasure of God. Now, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I received an email last week, from my father. He should live and be well. And the email had an attachment, and the email was titled, Please read this, and read this to your children. And it was like 10 pages of Hebrew writing. So I read it, and I read it to my children. And the story is somewhat related, but it's such a powerful story, I'll tell it to you as well. So first of all, it's it's documented. We know the name of the person involved and where he lived. His name was Akiva Steinberg, and he lived in, after the war, he was a Holocaust survivor. He lived in B'nei which is a city in central Israel. During the war, his wife and his six children were killed. And he got remarried after the war, and he had four additional children. But one day in the uh, 1970s, he went to his rabbi in Israel and says, I have to tell you what just happened, but I have to give you some background information from my time in Auschwitz. The day I arrived in Auschwitz, he tells the rabbi, my wife and my six children were sent to the gas chambers. And I was sent to slave labor in a, in a factory that made coal, a coal factory or coal mining operation of sorts. Or a factory, it's not so clear from the story if it's a factory that used coal. And, uh, obviously, you know, it's the low, it's the worst hell. Dante's Inferno is nothing compared to, compared to Auschwitz. And he just felt like everything was lost. And then he met someone there whose name was We don't know his last name. Just tells us his name was Rabbi Arya. And he says that this man tapped him on the shoulder and says, well, we haven't studied any Torah today. We haven't studied any Torah today. Can you imagine in in Auschwitz, in this the, the most hellish circumstances ever, ever experienced, perhaps, in human history? This same Rabbi Arya, he lost his wife and his eight children when they arrived to Auschwitz. And he's coming over to this other Jew, Akiva, Akiva Steinberg. And he says to him, we did not learn any, any Torah today. And they started studying and they became good friends. This Rabbi Arya was an incredible Torah scholar. And he knew like pages and books of Talmud by heart. And they would study together. And that's how they kind of got through the uh, the winter, the early parts of the winter of 1945, at the very end of the war. It was a month before Pesach, and Rabbi Arya told his his friend Akiva, he says, well, in less than a month, it's Pesach. And how can we go through Pesach without eating Matzah? He says to him, you're crazy. We're in Auschwitz. We're lucky if we get a, a morsel of bread to survive, skin, skin and bones, working them to death. He says, no, we're in Auschwitz but the Almighty is capable of everything. And if we really, really want it, he'll find a way to send us some matzah. That was their discussion, okay? So they they started praying to be able to fulfill this mitzvah. And this was already towards the end of the war, and the Allies were converging on, uh, on Germany from both sides. And that night... The the bunch of missiles, a bunch of bombs, not missiles, bombs landed in Auschwitz. And one of them hid a silo that contained wheat. And so they wake up the next morning and there's a lot of wheat scattered throughout the camp. And on the way back from their work, they would march and march and march and march to go to their work site. He was able to grab a few bundles of wheat, hide them under his prison garb, and bring it to the barracks. And every night they found some stones. And they were milling their flour, and it took them uh, several weeks until they had a sufficient amount of of a uh, flour. And uh, when they went to their factory one day. They decided that they're going to use the heat of the furnace to, to bake their matzah. So they mixed their flour with some water and they took a, a hammer of sorts and punctured some holes in it. They put it into the factory walls or into the furnace. And uh, a few minutes later, they had kosher matzahs. One for him, one for him, one for Akiva, one for Rabbi Arya. And uh, they're they're close to their goal. This is what the story says. I'm just, I don't know where the story comes from. It's it's documented in this email that I received from my father. Anyhow, that day, they marched back to the camp. And they had their matzah. He had his matzah. He was telling the story. He had the matzah underneath his garment. And the Nazis saw that he was walking... A little bit uh, awkwardly, that he was hiding something. So, what are you hiding? He shook him down, and the matzah fell on the floor. And he started taking his the butt of his rifle and smashing the matzah into small little pieces. And then he started beating up this poor Jew, and he he knocked him unconscious. And he fell down on top of the pile of matzah crumbs, and he's being beaten by this by this Nazi. And after a few minutes, he regains consciousness. He's bloodied and beaten. But he notices there's still, some, there's still some crumbs there, some broken shards of a matzah. And he quickly manages to take it with him and bring it back to the, uh, to the barracks. But the problem was there wasn't enough now for both of them. They only had a sufficient quantity for one of them to fulfill the mitzvah, not the other. And given that, you know, this Akiva gentleman, he had found the wheat and he had actually baked it and he was beaten up for it. It was his. And he tells his friend, I'm sorry, there's only enough for one of us and I don't have to give it to you. It's going to be my mitzvah. So this Rabaria fellow, he started begging and pleading to be able to get the matzah. He says, I'll, I'll recite the whole Haggadah word for it. I know it by heart. Just give me the matzah. He says, no, I'm not going to be you the matzah. And he says, you know what, let's make a deal. I'll eat the matzah on Pesach, but you will get all the merit of this matzah in Auschwitz. All the merit in heaven goes to you. So he said to him, okay, we have a deal. So the Seder night arrived. Of course, they had nothing. They didn't have any Four glasses of four cups of wine, or this was not a a satyr, the kinds that we are familiar with. The way the story is written, they had a few pieces of matzah, they had no four cups, but they had plenty and plenty and plenty of Mara. The life was so bitter that 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 they had plenty of. And they said the they said the haggadah in the Barretts, could you imagine? In the barretts in Auschwitz, they recited the haggadah. And this Rabbi Aria, he actually ate the matzah. And he was so excited that he was able to eat matzah in Auschwitz, he couldn't fall asleep the whole night. And in the morning, he was so excited to pray that he forgot where he was. And the way the story, tells, the way the story is told is that he started saying challah. the is the songs of praise that we give to God on festivals. He was saying it out loud. And the, the, the Nazi guard barged in, put a gun to his head, and killed him on the spot. That's the story. A few weeks later, the camp was liberated. And this Akiva Steinberg fellow says that he weighed, he weighed uh, 36 kilos. So that's like 70-something pounds. Just Pure skin and bones, and uh, he had no, nothing to live for. But uh, slowly but surely, he was able to reestablish himself, moved to Israel, got remarried, had four children. At the time of this story, had 10 grandchildren. And he comes to the rabbi in 1975 or 1978, it seems like, from the story. And he says, last night I had a dream. And my old friend from Auschwitz came to me in the dream. And he was all bedecked in white. And I had a conversation with him. I said to him, where are you? And he says, I'm in a place. It's a very wonderful place. It's it's full of light. It's full of this incredible experience. I died after all because I'm a Jew. And like the Ramam tells us, the people that are the highest level are the ones that are killed because... Of of the fact that they're part of the Almighty's nation. But I want to tell you that for thirty years, thirty three years, I've been trying to come to you in a dream, and only today I received a heavenly permit. I don't even know what this means, but this is what he told him in the dream. Only today I received a, a heavenly permit to come to you, and I'm coming to you with a with a request. Every mitzvah that I did, I have incredible reward here in the world of the souls for what I did. But there's one mitzvah that I did that I have no reward from. And that's the eating of of matzah on on that Pesach. We had a deal, and heaven recognized the legitimacy of that bargain, of that agreement, and I don't have the reward. So for 33 years, I've been trying to find a way to come and ask you if you're willing to forfeit that reward and give it to me. So in the dream, he responded to him. He says, listen, I can give you whatever I, whatever you want I'll give you. I'm not going to give you the reward for a son. How could you give up that? You win the lottery, the Powerball. Someone says, can I have it? You say, no. He was very sad, and he left, and now I woke up, and he went to his rabbi, what do I do? What do I do? Should I actually give up on this reward? After all, you know, I found the the wheat, I made the matzah, I was beaten silly because of it, and we made a deal. Why should I forfeit? Why should I yield? Why should I give up my reward? On the other hand, you know, the soul of my friend came to me and begged me and pleaded and beseeched me. What do I do? So his rabbi, we're told in the story, his name is Rabbi Unger. He says, I I cannot answer this question. You have to go to someone really, really serious. You have to go to someone who's a real, this is... This is beyond my pay grade, as they say. So he went, we're told, he went to one of the great Hasidic masters, told him the whole story. And he said to him, I think it would be appropriate for you to forfeit it. He says, listen, it's been 33 years since then. How many mitzvahs were you able to do? Every morning you're able to wear tefillin. Every Shabbos you're able to keep. Please, God, you live for a long life. You have so many opportunities to do mitzvah. This is one mitzvah, and he has no more opportunities, and he's begging. It's fitting for you to forfeit it. So this Akiva Steinberg individual accepted this. and says, okay, I'm willing to forfeit my reward for the matzah, the Auschwitz matzah. says, so it's not, you can't just say that. We're going to go right now, into the shul, and we're gonna go in front of the ark, and we're gonna tell the the Torah scrolls there. I hereby forfeit my reward to the one who did the mitzvah for the matzah, and that's what they did. The the story tells us it was it was middle of the night, and they went to the shul, and in front of the Torah scrolls in the ark, he declared. Hashem, master of the world, I am forfeiting to Rabaria the reward, for the full heart, the reward for eating the matzah on Pesach of 1945. And uh, with that, he went to sleep, and he got another dream. And again, he sees his friend, Rabaria and his face was glowing, and he was very, very happy. And he says that in heaven they accepted what you said. And I, 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 I thank you from the depths of my heart. I cannot f- describe to you the impact of what you did for me. So the next morning, after such a dream, this Ativa person, he went back to the Hasidic master who advised him to forfeit on the reward. And he told him about the second uh, the second dream. And uh the Hasidic master started crying. He said to him, He says, you Tell me the story about this special Jew who went through the trials and the suffering of Job. But he lived life with such holiness and such purity, and he knew that the whole Talmud, he was able to just read massive parts of the Talmud by heart. And he's in the world of the souls and Eden and paradise and the highest places. And it's worth it. It's worth it for him to leave that highest realm to go here and to beg you for one more mitzvah. Cause there it's, it's, it's too late. And we're here. We're in this world. And around us, there are thousands of mitzvahs. Wherever you turn, there's more mitzvahs that you could do. That's all within arm's reach. What can we possibly say when we arrive in heaven and once we're going to be on the other side of this equation and we're going to have the unfortunate or the painful realization of what we had and the opportunities we had. It was just right there and we let it slip through our fingertips. How important it is to seize all the opportunities that we have. That's where the uh, the story ended. So it's a very powerful story. And you could see why my father wanted to send it to us. He sent it to all the children and uh, to read it to our children. And it's a little bit off topic, but it's definitely germane to the idea. This is a long way of saying that the notion that pleasure is not a part of our religion, it's just not true. It's a central part of our understanding of what God wants for us. Again, Rav says, the sole purpose why we exist is because the Almighty wants to bestow pleasure upon us. But we're told that we're supposed to limit pleasure. This is way number 18. bemiut Tanud with limiting pleasure. Why are we limiting pleasure if that's what we're here to do? And of course, the answer is because there are trade-offs. When you're operating on a much higher level of pleasure, if you choose to leave that domain and to operate on a lower level of pleasure and to pursue that, then you're going to be forfeiting the higher levels. I, I used to be able to say, if someone has just candy and carbs and overeating, that's Pleasureful, but then you lose the pleasure of being you know, handsome and thin and fit. You used to be able to say that, but now, thanks to Ozempic, it's just not true anymore. Now you can kind of have it both. So, so that that example just doesn't, doesn't apply anymore. But the principle is still true, that there are different areas of pleasure. Like we said at the beginning, Like everyone agrees that we're here to pursue pleasure. The only question is, what domain of pleasure, what type of pleasure, what level of pleasure are we seeking, are we pursuing? And this way is talking about physical pleasure. And we're not told to have a complete abstinence, a complete withdrawal from physical pleasure. Limit it, but still have a little bit. We don't believe that physical and material Pleasure is necessarily in conflict with spiritual pursuits. Of course, the greatest example of this is the Nazir. The Talmud tells us that a Nazir brings a sin sacrifice. A Nazir is someone that withholds from wine. They're refraining from from physical pleasure, from material pleasure. But when they're done, they have to bring a sin sacrifice because you pained yourself. You caused yourself unnecessary pain by abstaining from from wine. So the idea of completely cutting off any physical pleasure, that's not our understanding. A little bit is appropriate, actually beneficial. But indulgence, an overemphasis on physical pleasure, that's not our way either. For most people in the world, that is what life is about. It's about seeking Pleasure, pursuing pleasure, of course, everyone's like that. But most people subsist with much lower levels of pleasure. Our primary emphasis, of course, is on the agenda of the soul. And therefore, we're going to be pursuing pleasures of the soul. But the body is a necessary component of this whole process. We look at the body as a vehicle through which we actualize the agenda of the soul. And the body has to be properly maintained, of course. And we want the body to be cooperating with this whole enterprise. And it's important that the body is not suffering. It's important that the body is sometimes thrown a bone, if you will. When we consume food, we're told to make a blessing. Why? It's called, the blessing of pleasure. If physical pleasure was bad, you would not be making a blessing over it. Every day we're, we're thanking God for all the goodness that He bestows upon us and we get to enjoy it. And if there's a blessing, it must be that this is actually something, even though there's physical pleasure to it, there's also this is part of the agenda of the soul as well. When you recognize that God created it for you to enjoy, That's actually a mitzvah. So so physical pleasure, a little bit, can be spiritually beneficial. You should enjoy your dessert. Enjoy your steak. But if that becomes your life goal, if it overtakes your life, if you lose control, and that becomes your focus, and all you're thinking about is what you're going to eat, and what you're going to enjoy, what's the next thing that you're going to Pursue the next physical pleasure you're going to be. You're going to be pursuing. That's really dangerous, because you're forfeiting much higher levels of pleasure, and that would be very unfortunate. It is interesting that we find some sources that speak very harshly against pursuing physical pleasures. The sages tell us before you pray that Torah enter your innards. Pray. That delicacies of this world do not enter your innards. There's a real danger for the physical pleasures to enter your innards. And you have to pray to stave that off. A little bit of pleasure is okay. It's even encouraged. But if that enters your innards, that becomes something which is a central player in what you're pursuing in life, you're you're in real trouble because... Torah is going to be pushed out. So you, of course, you need to pray that Torah enters your innards, but you also have to pray that it's vacant from other things because if your innards are full of pursuit of physical pleasures, there ain't no room for your innards to be seeking other higher level pleasures. Earlier in this same chapter, we had the idea of the way of the Torah. This is all the way back in chapter six, Mishnah number four. It talks about eating some, some bread with salt and sleeping on the ground and living a life of privation. There are again indications that physical pleasure gone overboard is dangerous. So what exactly is the balance? So perhaps we can suggest the following. Anazir, someone who withholds, abstains from physical pleasure. They have to bring a sin sacrifice. What sin did they do? So the Talmud tells us that they caused themselves pain because they withheld, they refrained from wine. Interesting. It doesn't say that they withheld from pleasure. It says they caused themselves pain. When is total abstinence a problem? If it causes pain. Your life is supposed to be gratifying and rewarding. And if you're feeling pain, it means that your body is not being maintained properly, it's not being given sufficient pleasure. People think, you know what? I'll suffer. I'll suffer in this world, but it's okay because there's another world, and I'll benefit there. That's not that's not our way. If you're pained here, and you could do something to prevent that, I hate to say it, the Talmud, Talmud calls you a sinner. Why are you accepting pain? We're not about forfeiting. You're supposed to enjoy. So perhaps we can say, if something pains you, then it's a problem. We have to pray that the delicacies don't enter our innards. We can enjoy it, partake in it, but itch not overtake who you are. Oh, and that mission that talks about living a life of privation, Rashi there tells us this is not an ideal. What the Mishnah is telling us is that even if a person does not have anything but some bread and some salt and some water, and they don't even have a bed to sleep upon, nevertheless, they should not refrain from studying Torah. Your body is your friend. It's your partner. You need it to accomplish your spiritual goals. Once your body and your soul are separated, your soul no longer has a way to implement its agenda. Treat your body well. Make it happy. But don't allow its agenda to dominate your life. Doing that will have catastrophic consequences because invariably, it will make lower pleasures the focus of your life. That will permeate your innards. And by doing that, you are going to be foregoing higher and more lasting pleasures and that's a terrible shame. So this is way number 18, pleasure limiting it a little bit, not too much, just right. The Goldilocks zone with physical pleasures. And of course, my just is Rabbi Wolby at come I welcome your questions, your comments, and your feedback.